And one thing that they and other researchers have been looking at lately are what they call burnout profiles. So kind of characteristic ways of being burned out that correspond to patterns in the data that they're collecting. Um, so they do a kind of statistical analysis that is meant to bring to the surface these patterns, these, these kind of paradigms of how people experience burnout. And uh, those those various profiles are kind of what I call the burnout spectrum that, you know, burnout is the way that we often talk about it is like, well, you're you're burning, you're you're doing fine, you know, you're burning your fuel efficiently and all of that. And then one day you're burned out, you know, so it's like you're doing great and then suddenly you're doing horribly and there's no in between. Hello there, friends. Welcome back to the Happy Habit Podcast. I'm your host, Matthew. We talk health and well-being Mondays and Thursdays. If you're new, you're welcome. If you're returning, thank you so much for lending your support. And if you've not already done so, please like, subscribe, share and leave the podcast a positive rating. Three, four, five stars, whatever you think we have earned. And a reminder, we are on Instagram and YouTube. If you want to check out the videos of these podcasts, just look for the Happy Habit podcast on both platforms. Jonathan Malesic is a Dallas-based writer and former academic who holds a PhD from the University of Virginia. He is also the author of The End of Burnout, Why Work Drains Us and How to Build Better Lives. Jonathan was himself a victim of burnout, which prompted him to explore this age-old phenomenon. Indeed, we discuss the long history of burnout dating back to millennia. We talk about the pitfalls of aligning one's identity with how you make a living. Expect to learn about the three components of burnout. We hear about anti-burnout strategies. We ask how we separate meaning and purpose from receiving a paycheck. We hear about the relationship between burnout and lack of career fulfilment. And we also discuss the societal pressures that keep people tethered to the treadmill that leads them to become burnt out in the first place. Well, Jonathan Malesic, you're very welcome to the podcast. You're the author of The End of Burnout, Why Work Drains Us and How to Build Better Lives. Uh, burnout is something that uh, really is in a lot of people's minds at the moment, what with the pressure of everyday lives and uh, and work and the demands of work, certainly as people return to the workplace and the offices after the pandemic and all the remote working that uh, was involved during the pandemic. Uh, but you have personal experience, which probably informed your writing of this actual book. You were a college professor and uh, you suffered from burnout. Can you tell me about this? Yeah. And it, first of all, just thank you so much uh, for having me here. It's it's wonderful to be with you. Being a college professor was my dream job. I had wanted to do it uh, ever since I was about 19 or 20 years old. And I got it, right? I, I realized my dream. Uh, until about seven or eight years in, um, it stopped feeling like a dream. Uh, I, for inexplicable reasons, found it increasingly difficult to plan for my classes. 
uh, sometimes even difficult to get to my classes on time or even just to get out of bed. And that persisted for a few years, uh, really about three years. I just was increasingly miserable in this job that I supposedly loved. And eventually things got so bad that I quit. Um, fortunately, I was I was able to quit because my wife, who is also an academic, she got uh, a very good job offer um, uh, here where we live now in Texas. And so you know, she took the job. I quit mine. And then I was left to kind of figure out what had happened. And this was a few years ago. So this was in 2016, uh, before burn, before the pandemic and before burnout had become the buzzword that it is today. But yeah, I stumbled upon this concept of burnout and it just increasing. The more I learned, the more it made sense of what had happened to me and also what I saw happening to other workers in a whole range of industries. Okay. So. If we can put the term burnout into context, how would you characterize it? Because I know there are three components to it. Certainly, yeah. Burnout is very misunderstood. Uh, the, the first chapter of my book is called Everyone is Burned Out, But Nobody Knows What That Means. And we tend to associate burnout with exhaustion. So you just lose motivation, you lose energy, you feel like you cannot complete the tasks that you're supposed to in your job. And that is one component. Um, exhaustion or emotional exhaustion is one thing that researchers measure when they're trying to study burnout. But it's only one. Uh, the other two components that are often overlooked, but I think absolutely essential to understanding burnout are a sense of ineffectiveness. So the feeling that your work is not accomplishing anything and cynicism or what they sometimes call depersonalization. So you treat the people you work with, your students, clients, patients, coworkers, as something less than the full human beings that they are. And those, those are the three dimensions that researchers measure when they're trying to understand the burnout phenomenon. And cynicism really is very corrosive. It has a, a toxic effect on the mind. There's a negativity involved in it, which eats away at your own mental health as well as anything else, including your energy level, certainly. But certainly whenever you're in that workspace, what, four or five days a week, whatever it is, and you're constantly reinforcing that cynicism and that negativity, that really reinforces that propensity towards burnout that you're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. And in any job where you are interacting with other human beings, which is, you know, most jobs uh, in a 21st century economy, cynicism is going to be absolutely corrosive to your effectiveness. A person who treats other people miserably, a person who sees other people as problems is not going to be very good if their job is to be a teacher or a physician or a nurse or a sales associate or or a podcast host for that matter. Um, it, 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 yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, cynicism can manifest in a lot of different ways. It can be the sort of 
hard-boiled, um, cynical, no-nonsense person, you know, manager or physician or something like that. But it could also be gossip, can be cynicism. Uh, it can be just sort of freezing out uh, some of your coworkers or not giving your students you know, a chance to, to explain, you know, what, what, they, what they were doing, why they, they wrote this bizarre paper or something like that. So there is a lot of different manifestations of cynicism. And, and you're right that it's, it's totally corrosive. The other component of burnout you mentioned there was ineffectiveness. Now, I'm interested to hear your opinions on this. Does the ineffectiveness stem from the fact that many of us tend to align our identities with our occupation and our job. We we pour all of our mental and physical energies into a particular occupation because we see that job as an extension of us and our identities. And really, this is super counterproductive and a, a large contributor to burnout. Is that where the ineffectiveness comes up? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that ineffectiveness is the component of burnout that I think people are least likely to admit to um, in societies like most English speaking societies where work is this uh, extreme moral value, you know, to be a hard worker is just to be a good person. Um, it can be a badge of honor to say, oh, I'm, I'm just so exhausted. I'm just wiped out because clearly, you know, you're working very hard and that's the proof. Even cynicism can be something of a badge of honor. Uh, you say, look, I don't care about the niceties. I just want to get things done, right? Like that person is a sort of archetype of the good worker in our cultures. No one brags about how ineffective they are. Um, so if you have this feeling of ineffectiveness there's a sense that something has really gone wrong uh yeah no one wants to say that that they they can't accomplish anything um precisely because to say boy you know i just don't think that my my work is is doing anything you know that that is to admit a failure as a person uh in a way that i think exhaustion and and cynicism don't it's funny researching this interview I looked for quotes in relation to the subject of burnout and uh, I found a quote online. It comes from a university who shall remain nameless, uh, but uh, they have this uh, quote-unquote motivational quote to help you through your burnout and it reads, don't say you don't have enough time. Now, I can't think of anything more toxic than that particular phrase, uh, certainly when it comes to the subject of burnout. Yeah, that's awful. <laughs> <laughs> Because, like, ah, you know, a, a um, a book that is, you know, according to Amazon, frequently purchased alongside my own book is Oliver Berkman's book, 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals, which is a wonderful book. Uh, and the title comes from the number of weeks in a typical human lifespan, uh, you really don't have enough time to do everything that you want to do, that you might do, that your employers wish you would do. Um, and there, there's no there's no life hack 
around mortality. Um, there's no way to get past finitude. And I think that one big contributor to burnout is having these unrealistic expectations of what you can accomplish in an hour, a day, a week, a year, a lifetime. Uh, and when you're kind of caught between those expectations and reality, like that is when you are likely to experience burnout. And of course, burnout is not specific to the 21st century. In your book, you detail 2,000 years of burnout. Right, yeah. They're, they're sort of historical precursors to burnout. You know, every every culture seems to be, or every cultural era at least, seems to be exhausted in its own way. And so, right, in the book... Uh, I'd spend some time talking about melancholia and acedia, which we don't, I think we don't talk enough about. I think acedia is, I mean, it's, it's this spiritual listlessness uh, that was sort of first theorized by uh, early Christian monastics living in the desert. And, you know, they didn't want to do their prayers, basically. And they diagnosed themselves with this thing called acedia a lack of care and it sounds a bit like burnout in some ways but i think there are some key differences and i would love i think we should resurrect acedia for the 21st century because i think it's actually it's it's not exactly like burnout but it names an experience that i think is all too common uh in in a society that is often driven to distraction also, you, you stipulate in the book that it seems that burnout is correlated with the occupations that we're doing in the modern age. It seems the jobs are getting worse and that is contributing uh, to our, our apathy towards our, our jobs and uh, that propensity towards lack of fulfillment and again, burnout. Yeah, I mean, burnout has, burnout's own history, uh, the, the term began being used as it is today in the middle of the 20th century. Uh, you can look to the the Graham Greene novel, A Burnt Out Case, uh, which is kind of about a uh, an architect who undergoes something like what we now call burnout. But the 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 concept as a subject of psychological interest appeared in the 1970s and it was first identified in human service workers so people who are working very intensely with other people social workers counselors uh, attorneys nurses and so on and i think that it that it, it was also simultaneously at the time when the workforce was changing very rapidly and decisively. So we we began, you know, in in um, you know, it, you know, highly industrialized countries like you know the U.S., the U.K., Ireland, Canada, and so on, uh, were changing to more service economies. Um, so the, those human service jobs became a bigger part of the economy. And as our economies have shifted even more decisively toward services, I think we're more aware of burnout. I mean, burnout is something that can happen to any worker, no matter what they do. But 
it's it was it was first identified in these human service professions and certainly like as those professions have become more prominent so has our uh, awareness of burnout a term which i wasn't familiar with uh, until recently was a burnout spectrum can you talk to us about this yeah that's a little bit of my own coinage there but it's uh, i'm building on research by uh, Christina Maslach and Michael Leiter and some of their collaborators. So Maslach and Leiter have been doing excellent work on burnout for five decades. Uh, and they, they came out with a, a new book a, about a year ago, uh, kind of summarizing uh, a lot of their recent research. And one thing that they and other researchers have been looking at lately are what they call burnout profiles. So kind of characteristic ways of being burned out that correspond to patterns in the data that they're collecting. Um, so they do a kind of statistical analysis that is meant to bring to the surface these patterns, these, these kind of paradigms of how people experience burnout. And uh, those those various profiles are kind of what I call the burnout spectrum that, you know, burnout is the way that we often talk about it is like, well, you're, you're burning, you're, you're doing fine. You know, you're burning your fuel efficiently and all of that. And then one day you're burned out, you know? So it's like, you're doing great. And then suddenly you're doing horribly and there's no in between. The data shows that there is an in between, um, that burnout is, it's not an on off switch. Um, it is more of a spectrum with a few characteristic ways of being burned out. And it's also a progressive uh, syndrome. So you might experience burnout first primarily as exhaustion. But over time, if that is not addressed, you will begin to feel cynicism. You'll begin to feel ineffectiveness. You'll be sort of classically burned out. And then you're really kind of in a bad spot because it's much harder to fix the problem the longer it goes. And then following on then from that, there is a correlation between burnout and age. Yeah, that was a big surprise in, uh, in you know, what I found in the research. Uh, I think that certainly in my, you know, for me, my understanding of like, what is a burnout? What is it to be burned out? It's like, you know, a, a veteran, um, you know, worker, someone who's been in the same position for decades and has just lost all motivation. They're, they're burned out. They're used up, something like that. They're becoming sort of fossilized uh, on the job. And that turns out not to be quite true. Um, very often it is younger workers uh, earlier in their career who are most susceptible to burnout and it kind of makes sense if we see burnout properly. Like, I think that the public, the, the, the typical understanding of burnout is that you've got this limited tank of fuel, you burn through it, and then you're burned out. That's not really the case. It's burnout is more like being stretched between your ideals for work and the reality of your job. Yeah, the ideal, the, the expectations and reality. And so when you're early in your career, you often have very high ideals. You know, you're ready to change the world. You're ready to rise to the top of your profession. 
and you believe that you have the ability to do it. But often, uh, your conditions are the worst they're ever going to be. You aren't paid very much. Uh, you have the worst schedule. You have very little autonomy early in your career. And you might just be in the wrong career. Uh, and so I think one reason that you see burnout often in early career physicians, say, and not in later career ones, is that the people who burn out at age 30 or 35 go into another career that might be more sustainable for them. And so the people who are there at age 50 and beyond are the one are the survivors in a sense. They're the ones who've been able to manage ideal and reality uh, over a long period of time. How much are our ideals influenced, and, and probably negatively so, by our competitiveness and our desire to compare ourselves with our peers, particularly in a professional context? You were talking about people earlier on in their careers uh, being subject to those ideals and uh, people obviously, and I'm talking about young males here more more than anything, would be probably more competitive with their peers and uh, looking for that promotion, looking to stand out in the workplace. How much of that would inform or influence our, our ideals, the ideals you mentioned? Yeah, I mean, that com that competitiveness can, it, it, in a way, it's you're allowing... When, you're com when you identify someone to compete with, you know, you're allowing them to set your ideals. Um, and this is something that, you know, I, I, I am certainly competitive. Um, and I, I see, you know, when I was working full time in academia, I would see, oh, you know, so-and-so got this grant or this publication. And like, I got to go for that too, or I got to go for something better. Um, and so we can allow competitiveness to set unrealistic expectations for ourselves. Um, and, you know, I mean, I have to admit, like a little bit of competitiveness is probably a good thing. Um, you know, just as like having high aspirations, you know, wanting to do a good job is, I think, is a good thing. Uh, but I think that it can go too far. Uh, when you start setting unrealistic expectations or when you're competing just for the sake of competing, uh, as we so often do, then, you know, you, you've lost a sense of perspective and uh, you, you may be trying to do something that your reality is not set up to permit. Well, the second half of your book looks at, uh, amongst other things, looks at some anti-burnout strategies. Can you give us an idea of what those look like? Sure. And I mean, I'll start by saying what they are not. Uh, so a lot of the advice that you see, like if you just go and Google how to combat burnout or something, it's almost certainly going to turn up articles that are aimed at the individual. How you as an individual, can fix your burnout. That does not work. It cannot work because the causes of burnout are not solely within you. you know, even your ideals are not completely up to you because they're often established by your culture or your employer or something like that. You have expectations placed upon you from the outside. Likewise, your working conditions are not totally up to you. In fact, they're often 
not up to you at all. Uh, and so because the causes of burnout are primarily outside the individual, the solution to the problem has to be cultural and uh, in, in the workplace. Uh, so we have to change our workplace cultures and we have to change our culture uh, in, in our various societies. And so, right, in, in the, towards the end of the book, I highlight a few people and organizations that I think are trying to create a better, more humane culture and, and work out of a better set of values. And one of those is this uh, monastery of Benedictine monks in the New Mexico desert. Um, you know, they... Their life is devoted to prayer. That's the most important thing to them. Um, but they have to work to sustain themselves. However, they have, I think, managed to constrain their work to times and places where it doesn't interfere with the the main thing that they're supposed to be doing. And I think that there's something to be learned, even from these cult, you know, these groups that are kind of on the fringes of society. Okay, you're talking about at a societal level, and uh, I understand that society is on this treadmill of production and consumption and moving forward and always looking for, well, certainly governments are always striving towards economic growth, etc. And people want to be more affluent. So in order to be more affluent and have more money, they have to produce and work, etc., etc. But how do we, how do we avoid being slave to that treadmill in such a way that it depletes us at an emotional level and a physical and psychological level, individually speaking. Yeah, I mean, there is there is a role for the individual to play uh, in this. We can certainly make things worse for ourselves if we go along with that 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 ideal of the treadmill that is often set upon us or we are set upon the treadmill rather the the what an individual has to do is somewhat countercultural though you know we do have to become comfortable with uh with less in in some ways um we would have to give up on the desire to have, you know, always have more and always be more productive and, and so on. You know, like you mentioned, governments want constant growth in the economy. That is kind of the model of 20th and 21st century capitalism. As long as the pie, uh, so to speak, keeps getting bigger, then, you know, everybody can, can have something. Um, and, the problem is that to make the pie bigger and bigger, everyone has to keep working more and more. Um, and that's, yes, we we can become a more affluent society, but we might have some kind of, you know, moral or spiritual impoverishment or, or social impoverishment. Our social lives can become worse, as they certainly have uh, over the last few years. So, yeah, I mean, I think... Um, so like, I really like the American writer, Henry David Thoreau. Um, he's also someone who is living this kind of strange, uh, countercultural experiment and Thoreau, you know, one of my favorite lines of 
Thoreau. He says that, um, you know, this this man uh, who he's kind of imagining um, as, as having this epiphany, you know, realizes that the only thing he could do is to, I don't know if I'm going to get the order of these things um, correct, but he says the, the only thing this man could think to do was to practice a new austerity, allow his mind to descend into his body and redeem it and treat himself with ever increasing respect. And I think that that that's sort of the key. You know, what austerities can we as people undertake? Um, how can we learn to treat ourselves with more respect and recognize that our employers don't always do that and, and in fact demand that our employers treat us with greater respect and, you know, become whole beings, uh, you know, where mind and body are kind of, you know, working together uh, instead of resisting each other. So, yeah, that's uh, 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 a somewhat uh, long-winded way of saying that, yeah, there there is a role for the individual to play. And, and I think it does, it, it may involve um, doing less and, you know, but we're, we're forced to do less. You know, again, Oliver Berkman, you know, we're finite. There's, there's a hard limit on what we can accomplish. It's that uh, live to work, work to live analogy, uh, I think. Exactly. Um, but yes, you're definitely right. And it, it's, it's a sad reality that people do need to make the choice to opt out of, uh, of, everyday life and that treadmill that we were talking about if they want to uh, align their identities with something other than how they get their paycheck every week or every month. Absolutely. And that's, I think, where that self-respect comes from. And respect, you know, recognize, first of all, that you are not, your value as a person is not wholly determined by the work you do or whether you work or not. You are valuable as a person before you ever work and if you never work. But the flip side of that is to see that in other people too. They are valuable regardless of their work status. And I think that that recognition of, you know, my human dignity and others' corresponding human dignity is that's the beginning, I think, to building a society that goes beyond burnout. I wonder, will future generations look back on this particular stage in human existence and with a critical eye and 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 think to themselves, wow, they were so caught up in in, in consumption and consumerism and capitalism and and all of those things which were the reason for their being so unhappy. Um, I, I wonder, will they take that uh, that um, that view of, of this current generation? Yeah, I, I hesitate to, to predict what future generations will say uh, about us. Um, because I, I think that we, we, we can see it now. <laughs> we know. Uh, we know that something is wrong. Uh, we, 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 feel it when we come home from work uh, and that, that something is amiss with the way that we work. Uh, and so, you know, it's, it, it's in our hands, you know, um, this culture of overwork is a human creation. Um, 
it is easy to say, ah, you know, capitalism did this. But, you know, I mean, capitalism is is itself a human creation. Um, we can do things differently. You know, we can we can change our culture. We can change our workplaces. Uh, we can, you know, it's it's hard, um, but human beings have done hard things before and uh, we can we can do them again. But isn't this what characterizes this current generation of humanity in that we have all of the wealth of experience accumulated through generations? We have more access to information than we ever did because of the internet and because of, uh, as I said, of generations of, of learning. And, and yet we still are seduced by capitalism, consumerism, and all the things that we know are the reason for our unhappiness and our being burnt out, but we still forge on the wrong path. It's, it amazes me, and I agree with you. I think future generations will will, will look back and uh, will, will think, look, they, they, they knew the right thing to do, but they still chose the other path. Yeah. Well, and, you know, that's a... That that's a a persistent feature of the human condition, I think. Um, so you know, I I used to teach theology, and um, you know, I mean, even Paul uh, in one of his letters says something like, "I'm not going to get it exact, but like something like, you know, I don't do the thing that I want to do, and I I do the thing that I don't want to do." You know, we can see we very often see the good and. Yet we are incapable of uh, of pursuing it. So we've got this weakness of will often. And you know, knowing that is probably the first step. Uh, you know, we can we could probably push a little bit more uh, in the right direction once we realize, first of all, that something is has gone wrong and we are not willing and desire or we are not willing the things that we know we should desire. Well, you and I are trying our level best to inform people and there today and uh, give people a little bit of uh, a pause for thought when it's certainly when it comes to that treadmill we were talking about and uh, to doing things that uh, align with their identities, their ideals and their values. Uh, let me give the name of the book again. It is The End of Burnout, Why Work Drains Us and How to Build Better Lives. The author, Jonathan Malisic. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Really enjoyed our chat. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you for listening to this episode of the Happy Habit Podcast. A reminder to like, subscribe, share, and we're also on Instagram and on YouTube if you want to check us out over there. Until next time, stay happy. Mm-hmm.